Hi, I'm Jim Martin. Before we get started on today's show, I just wanted to ask you just a simple thing. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support, the two of them, to make it work. We need your support. Drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com, click on support. It can be as little as a cup of coffee per month with our Patreon account. All that helps. Everything helps. Think about it. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for considering. Well, last week I sent Clinton Smout an email. I asked him to come up with what he thought were the top three road hazards for motorcyclists. He didn't even hesitate. The email came back immediately. He clearly knew what he wanted to say. But when I looked at the list, these three things that he put on there, I couldn't get past that first line. I thought, well, okay, I guess. But really, that's number one? That's number one? What I didn't realize is it wasn't his opinion. It's fact. It's based on research and data. The first one led directly into the second, and then the third, all correlating to one another. And I think for many riders, there's going to be some real eye-opening moments in today's show. Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive Rider Skills program coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Simon Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bourdieu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. John Thomas. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you the tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Clinton Smout is the head instructor for Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton is well known for his motorcycle training courses and certification programs for both dirt and street riding, among other things like ATV and snowmobile. Through his company, they've trained well over 130,000 people. And Clinton has also been instrumental in developing training curriculum for the province of Ontario. Clinton, welcome back. Hi, Jim. How are things? Oh, very, very good. How about you? How's your, you, you just, you've been up in the Yukon. We talked about that before. You're back now and you're back to the, what are you, back to the old grindstone? I certainly have. I put the harness on the day after I landed and it's been really pleasurable teaching a lot of variety, a lot of adventure bikes, uh, dirt bikes, some ATVs, and we were hard pressed for youth instructors over the weekend. So I taught about 12 kids how to ride, which was, I'd forgotten how much I dislike children. No, I mean, (laughs) no. No, and that's the real cool thing about that is you're starting out new riders there. That's pretty neat. It's so much fun. And with teaching children, they haven't learned to mask their emotions or their fears. So you just look at their face and you can tell if there's anxiety there or, or they're enjoying it. And you can kind of 
adjust your teaching focus based on how they're doing, where adults can kind of grit their teeth. Yeah, I'm having fun. I'm having fun. But really underneath, they're freaked right out. <laughs> That's kind of sad, isn't it? You know, I often it think is. about that, the, the roles that we take on as, as adults. It's kind of sad that you lose that, that you somehow learn to keep your emotions hidden and uh, not get too excited about things. All of all of those things that, that make you smile when you look at kids and, and watch them play. We seem to, we, we beat out of ourselves as you become it's an adult. True. Not that I've become an adult yet, but I'm on, no. on my way. Me either. I'm doing what I did when I was 14. Get a dirt bike dirty, break it, fix it. <laughs> Except now you're getting paid for it, though. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's always handy. Hey, you, you, you even try and ride dirt to work most of the time, don't you? Yes. Um, I live in, in a city of about 150,000 people. So I could take paved roads and a highway to our country location. It'd be about 25 minutes. But as soon as I can, I get out into the trail system and the county forest that I'm then going to utilize when I'm taking adventure bike riders out. So it's kind of checking out the trails to see the conditions, you know, any trees down before I start work. And you do that every day, every time you go in? No, sometimes I don't have the time. But if I know I'm teaching a two-day BMW course, I definitely take the 45-minute route to work that puts me on the trails I'm going to be on within a couple hours. Right. And, and that was sort of what the point I was, I was going to make was that even you who, who are trying to ride dirt all the time, you get plenty of road miles and you do it for a living. You're riding off road for a living. No matter how much you do, you've got plenty of road miles that you still end that, up doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of us as adventure riders, we've got to get lodging and food and fuel. So, no matter how adventurous our ride is, even up in the Yukon, we it's inevitable that we hit pavement and come into cities. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting is it takes a little while for your brain to change from, you know, highway speeds, the acquisition down to city speeds. It, it almost feels like you could jump off and r- run beside your bike going <laughs> you know, 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour when you were doing quite a bit more on the highway. Mm -hmm. And I also think our brains have to make an adjustment because, you know, up in the Yukon, there's very, very little traffic on the major gravel roads that go to destinations. So you can, your brain can relax a little more and lollygag around, take a quick glimpse at the mountain scene and the reflection in the lake, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't get away with that in the city when there's intersections. You know, the Dempster Highway, there's like three intersection little roads that go into campsites. That's it. Whereas in, you know, Dawson City, there's hundreds of intersecting roads and of course, everybody stops at red lights and stop signs. So you don't have to worry about that. Sure they do. <laughs> of course, we all know that. No one's seen anyone go through one of those before. Uh, it, yeah. it, so, so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about um, some road safety aspects. And you've yes. got three that you want to talk about throughout this. But I, I just want to reference the Hurt Report before we start here. 
The Hurt Report is a extensive study that was done back in 1976-1977 in the Los Angeles area, both rural and city. And they analyzed motorcycle accidents and they came up with some findings, which which still still today, that's probably the most comprehensive research done. Do you know of any, any more? Yeah, there's been small studies done, but nothing of the time and breadth that, and what an ironic name, the Hurt Report, but yeah. uh, Professor David Hurt was way above his time when, and every now and then, it's usually spring or summer, uh, legislators will be alarmed with the number of motorcycle incidents in cities. And they'll say, why is this happening? And it's pretty well the same causation factors that Dr. Hurt found in LA so many years ago. So a lot of his findings are very relevant to today's riders. And you mentioned two things there already that that are in the Hurt Report and sort of um, highlighted in this for everyone. One was the the fact that you were talking about riding, you know, if you're close to home. That is a a real hotspot for problems, isn't it? Somewhere close to home. The psychiatrists or psychologists say that we relax because we've turned right at that stop sign thousands of times if we've lived at our residence for any length of time. So your um, alertness is reduced because you just want to get home. You're more relaxed. It's usually not as congested if unless you live right downtown type of thing. And subsequently, that's what they say is most incidents happen within 10 miles, 16 kilometers of your house. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing you mentioned was intersections. Yes. And not being seen. Right. Now, as soon as I read that, that most accidents happen so close to home, I said to my wife, that's it, we're moving. <laughs> but it's, apparently it's, it didn't work. Yeah, it's a good thought process, though. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have your three that we're going to focus on today. Do you want to just, um, before you get into those, tell us why you chose them? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I started teaching in 1982 the bikes were steam powered. You had to get the fire going, let the power build up. I love those bikes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there were still street bikes being sold with drum brakes. And so I've been an avid dirt rider, street rider my whole life. And I taught street for 23 years before I started the off-road course. So it's very important to me. New technology on street bikes. I still ride a lot of street bikes. So um, I think about 10 years ago, the Metro Toronto police asked me to come down and do a little consulting for them. Every spring, a police officer that rides has to go through a recertification day. So they set up what looks like a thousand pylons in big parking lots, and they have to do low and high speed maneuvers, very tight turns, emergency braking emergency swerving and then braking, which is fascinating. And unless they perform to the expected level, they don't get a motorcycle, which is very rare. Every year they do that. That's great. Every spring. Most police departments do that. And that has evolved into police rider competitions around the world. But in North America, 
Um, there's quite a few locations where if you get a chance to watch it, even on YouTube, you'll see some incredible riding where floorboards on huge Harleys are scraping at full lock and they're flying around these pylons without touching them. Because if you touch a pylon, you're out of the running. And it's based on time and expertise. And you just blew your chance if you hit a pylon. But mm -hmm. anyway, where these gentlemen and ladies were having trouble is in most police departments, they sometimes have to patrol gravel roads or it might be a park system. Uh, in Metro Toronto, they had to ride their bikes across a grass medium to go the other way on expressways. And they had a lot of problems with big street tired Harleys in the gravel and the grass because that wasn't part of a lot of their training curriculum. Oh, so they're, so, they're so used to riding with high traction when they get into a low traction situation that everything changes. Yeah. For instance, they're very tight turns. They sit very upright with a straight back and just throw that big bike over, like the floorboard scrape at slow speeds. Well, if you do that in the gravel, the front end, if you're turning left, the front wheel is gone. It's going to wipe out to the right and you crash. So they were damaging bikes, getting injured, many police departments, when they try to do the same kind of skill maneuvers and it's not dry pavement. So, so did you did you yeah. have to glean this from information they gave you or did they tell you this is yeah. their issues? No. So they told me where they're having problems. So I did kind of a basic street rider who's never done dirt type curriculum and had them doing some braking and gravel, turning and gravel. And they said it really enhanced their skills. When you're going to do something like that and you're riding your own motorcycle down before you get there in that morning, when you're going from your home to the, sp the spot where you're going to do the instructions for all these police officers, what are you thinking about? And are you nervous about it before you get there? Yeah, I think uh, a good instructor should be a little nervous and apprehensive. It's reduced a bit if I've got a prepared curriculum of what I want to do and how I do it, how I'm going to go about it. But uh, these are incredibly good riders. So um, what I tell our staff, and I certainly adhere to it myself, is don't come off like you're some pro rider because there is always somebody faster or slower, like more adept riding slow than you are. So be humble and ask them what they would like to work on. Where have you had issues? And with the male ego, the way I phrase it is, you don't have to say, I'm having a trouble. Say you're asking for a friend or <laughs> this, this guy I know named Jim has trouble doing <laughs> this. And so, but with kind of a relaxed, humorous approach, people let their guard down more and they'll actually learn more because it's uh, police department training is based historically on military type training where it's not humorous and relaxed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> That's interesting to hear you say that because for the rest of us people who are just, you know, the, the casual rider or the amateur rider, however you want to say it, who just ride for fun, 
it's interesting to note that somebody of your caliber still gets a little nervous when you're going to do something like that. And, and it sort of puts things in perspective. It's okay for us to realize, to be nervous, to realize that, hey, we're not the best thing. <laughs> no matter how much you train, no matter how much you've ridden, there's, and I think that's one thing we've said it before, and I've said it all the time, is that one thing I love about riding motorcycles is no matter how good you get at something, there is so much more to learn. And yeah. uh, and it's so much more opportunity for you to, to learn more skills. But that's interesting to, to note there about yourself going into for the training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With this exercise, with going to, to train at the for the Toronto Police, they supplied you with a bunch of data and you came up with, uh, you sort of gleaned some, some top ones. Can you talk about that? Yeah. What they did is I kept asking questions along the lines of what Dr. Hurt would report to see if that was still valid, you know, an hour away from my where I live. And they were asked, answering a lot of questions. And finally, someone in charge said, well, come on down to the office and I'll get permission first. They blacked out all the names, but they gave me a a stack of paper that represented 20 years of incidents in the Metro Toronto area where street riders had problems. And so what I did is just painstakingly made columns and put check marks in on what type of issue the police officer at that scene um, had put down that that he thought was causation factors, which is the basis of the Hurt Report. Dr. Hurt gave um, pages of paper for police officers that are called to motorcycle incidents to write down, you know, what was the rear tire tread like? Was it raining? Was it hot? What time of day? What day of week? What was the age, sex of the participant? Was there customized aspects to the motorcycle, i.e. extended front end, loud pipes, quiet pipes? All that kind of data correlated into the study that could you can glean information from that. I encourage people just to read the Hurt Report. It's it's quite eye-opening. So um, I had this great big stack of paper and I wrote down the top three causation issues that street riders might have. And then as I've traveled, I've asked other police that I meet at bike shows or RCMP in Western Canada, uh, troopers in the States, and it's almost identical around the world where I've traveled, Australia, Britain, and North America. All motorcyclists face basically the so same you've got these, issues. You've got sort of three we're going to talk traffic. about today. We'll, yeah. we'll get to each one of those as we go through it. But that's interesting. So you, you found it here and then you confirm it by checking as much data as you Elsewhere. can around the world and you find the same sorts of things. And it does correlate with the Hurt Report as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And it's like 50 years old. It's incredible. We're going to take just a quick break, but when we come back, Clinton's got a recommendation. And I, I have the same recommendation actually for a, a great book to um, learn riding skills from. This is a book that every rider should have. And then we're going to talk through a bunch of other things. Clinton's got some stories to tell. Stay with us. A lot more coming up. The other day I was working on my bike and I had to head into town. It was a beautiful day. So the bike was the choice, of course. I had this list of things that I had to get while I was in town. And it wasn't until I got down the road that it suddenly struck me. I'd forgot to put something back on the bike that I'd taken off while I was doing the work. 
then I made a detour on this road and then I made another detour and well, more of them. And this is me getting sidetracked. It happens a lot. It's a real problem I have, but I ended up out for much longer than I planned. But as I rode, I found myself getting a little frustrated with this one tiny little thing I forgot to put back on my bike. I didn't think it was a big deal, but then I realized just how much I enjoyed using it. It was my Atlas throttle lock this tiny piece of beautifully crafted mechanism that sits so unobtrusively on my handlebar had become such a regularly used item that I actually forgot how much I'm using it until it wasn't there. I can't tell you how many times I reached out with my thumb expecting that firm positive feedback of the engage button when I I wanted a break for my wrist. But the other thing that I noticed, it became very apparent that day was how much I use it to give my hand a rest so that I'm not gripping the throttle all the time, that, that squeeze action that you have. So when I, when I engage the Atlas throttle lock, I can sort of relax my hand, even if I'm keeping it in that same position, even if I'm not like from the outside, you wouldn't know any difference. It makes a big difference. I must've made 20 mental notes to make sure that when I get home, I get my Atlas throttle lock back on. This little device will change the way you ride. Have a look at it. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Part of what we're talking about on rider skills today is conspicuity, standing out, clearly visible. And one of the ways we can use technology to amplify that is lighting. Good quality lighting. Lighting that's designed for motorcycles. See and be seen. That's the motto for Cyclops Adventure Sports. And they specialize in motorcycle lighting from start to finish. It's what started the company. Daryl Van Neuenhaus, the owner of the company, and his buddies were riding at night, mainly dual sport bikes. And auxiliary lighting for motorcycles back then was virtually non-existent. So he made himself a light. And then he made one for his friends. And then he made one for his buddies. And then so on and so on. You get the idea. That's how a great company is born from a great idea. Now, it's not just an idea because the people behind the company, behind Cyclops Adventure Sports, it's a family. It's not only a family, it's a family of riders. They own and run the company every day. All the products they make are incredibly well engineered and designed specifically for the use for motorcycling. They invented a product called the Evo Safety Turn Signals. And I sort of talk about that a little bit today. And that turns your front turn signals, which usually do nothing until you turn the signal on for with most bikes, turns those into super bright driving lights. I mean, these things are bright. And then in the back, they turn the rear signals, which again would be normally just signals, into super bright brake lights or signals. And both of them, they double. The front ones double the signals and the back ones double the signals as well. So the signal never goes away. It's still being used. But the back When you touch those brakes, the bright light that you get from that, those brake lights that come on from these Evo safety turn signals is unbelievably snappy, sharp, and super bright. It commands attention. They also make LED headlight replacements, all kinds of lighting, plug and play lighting for people with CAN bus systems on their bikes, so much more. Cyclops Adventure Sports. Oh, by the way, if you have a a bike where you have trouble finding room, look at their two-inch Aurora lights. These small lights literally punch holes through the darkness like you wouldn't believe and command attention during the day. The website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. cyclopsadventuresports.com. When it comes to being connected to your bike, your foot pegs are paramount. Obviously, how could you ride without foot pegs? So if they're so important, why do motorcycles come from the factory with such wimpy pegs? Well, it comes down to economics. And to be fair, the average motorcycle that's sold, very few are lucky enough to get a serious rider as its owner, but you are a serious rider and you need serious foot pegs. 
IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs ranging from the extra wide and large ADV1s and ADV2s on down to the core Enduros. Now, these pegs are all made from CAST certified 17.4 stainless steel. They're all built in the USA and they're all warrantied for life. And that warranty ought to give you a hint to the quality. They aren't just another foot peg. They're top of the line pegs, yet affordable for the average rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. So the the thing is, the, the one thing about learning this sort of thing, and I know some people will think, oh, safety, you know, safety always seems like a boring here topic. Here we go again, <laughs> exactly. But the thing is with this is, if you don't understand what can happen or what the dangers are, then you don't know even what to be prepared for or what to be fearful of. You know, it's it's like walking into a factory or something, having no idea what swings where and, and what's compressing what and trying to walk through. I mean, that would be very, very dangerous. But if you understood how the thing works, then all of a sudden you navigate your way through and you're very safe to do so. That's the same sort of thing we're, we're going to do right here, isn't it? I agree. I think when I started street riding at 16... I was a pretty accomplished dirt rider, having already ridden for 10 years. And I pretty well raced everywhere I went as a little kid on dirt bikes. Uh, how fast, whatever speed the bike would go, I was doing it. And I ride the same trails now, aghast and shocked at the speeds I used to go around corner. Because when we're young and new at some sports, we don't know or think of the consequences because we just haven't been exposed to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think a smart rider today is not someone who works on their mechanical skills like braking or steering, shifting gears. Those are important to get down pat and to be good at them. But what's equally, perhaps even more important is the mental motorcycling skills looking down the road and anticipating. Um, I was trying to tell my son this the other day and I got a lot of, of rolling of the eyes, but if you're on a two lane paved road heading south and there's eight cars in the left lane and only one in the right lane, as the rider, you happen to be in the right lane closest to the sidewalk. I believe you can anticipate one of the cars who is more impatient than the others in the left lane is going to dart over and change lanes in front of you. Mm -hmm. And if they don't do a shoulder check, their door mirror may not show you on your approach. So I was trying to tell my son, you've got to be super cautious. We were in a car at the time he was driving. You've got to anticipate it's almost like chess. They're, uh, both my sons will kick my in the butt in chess. They kill me now, where I used to let them win. <laughs> now you desperately try and lose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think riding a street bike, you've got to plan a couple moves ahead and anticipate what track traffic might do in front of you. And that comes from experience and reading stuff like the Hurt Report. I read a lot of motorcycle journalists. Um, you and I have mentioned David Huff's name. He, and we've had him on the show multiple times as well. Yeah, He's fantastic. He's the, I've never met him, but he, I've adopted a lot of his street riding strategies 
to my own. And I know some of them have really helped me still be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got, I'm going to have to put his, uh, his, a link to his book in the show notes. The one book, he's got several books out, a bunch of books out, but the one that is the most relevant even today, and I can't think, is, is it called Street Guys? Uh, proficient motorcycling, the ultimate guide to riding well. I'm going to have to put a, a link in that a link to this this book in the show notes for this episode. Yes, and it's spelt Huff. It's the word tough, but replace it with H. Oh, David I like Huff. That. Yeah, I like that. H O U G H. I like that. Very easy to find. Right. Okay, yeah. and and all of this speaks to that that thing of knowing what the what the possibilities are. And you were talking about driving along with your son in the car. That's what I do as well when I drive on the highways. I'm, I try to be very aware of what's going on and, and anticipate that. That's everything is trying to anticipate what happens to avoid a collision or or, or a problem. Now, in a car, you know, you'll have a certain uh, degree of um, penalty for your mistake, but in a motorcycle, much less um, cushion for a mistake, much less, much less room for error is what I'm trying to say. Yes. And a lot of people will say, you know, there's less metal around us protecting us, but because we're on a bike, I'm sure listeners have heard, I'm sorry, uh, I didn't see you. That's what police investigating an incident between a car and a bike often hear from the car driver. And the vision experts explain that What we see is what our brain has told us is important, but there's hundreds of things in a kilometer of travel distance that our eyeball could encapsulate, but the part of our brain that deems it important has chosen not to tell us that it was there. Does that make sense, Jim? Yeah, definitely. It's like a like a hydro post, telephone post, a mailbox. All those yeah. things are there. We're going by them, but we don't register them consciously because they're unimportant to us. Exactly. So most car drivers are looking for other cars, trucks. So they may not actually see the narrow skinny object with one headlight. I mean, and you've had that as well, where someone looks right at you, apparently, according to us, the rider, they look right at you and then they pull out. Yeah, I've had it happen at a four way stop in my hometown. I pulled up to stop and I believe in the right of weight, not the right of way. You could drag your leg into court after you you get out of hospital and sue the guy that ran you over. But it's, it's a little late then. Yeah. So I stopped at the stop sign and there was a car opposite me with his turn signal on. So I waved him on and he didn't move. And then he waved me on. So I moved off. He pulled out and almost hit me. (laughs) And his window was down. So I yelled, did you not just wave me on? And he said, mosquito. He wasn't waving me on. So I learned a valuable lesson I don't trust people flashing their headlights. I don't trust turn signals. That could have been on since the guy bought the truck. I trust the front wheels. Are they pointing at me? Are they turning? And so we can address that later in in the car that turns left in front of us. Why did they do it and what can you do? But um, 
I, that was a valuable lesson. The guy was swatting a mosquito and I thought he was waving neon. Yeah, but, but that is so true. And, and the flashing lights thing, that's a common one. And you can mistake that for anything. I oh. never trust that as well. As a matter of fact, yeah. I, I wrote, have ridden with somebody who flashes his light as he goes up to the intersection. There's no way I would do that at no. all. Because it, could, it they, could mean you you don't have your lights on. Hey, get your high beams off. Yep. Uh, hey, buddy, there's a police radar trap ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it mean you go, I'm going? That's so ambiguous. Definitely. And did you notice that more cars now have tinted windows, which I didn't think was legal, but tinted windows so you can't even see the driver or barely see the driver? Uh, I finally got a new truck that I bought a year ago. It was fantastic on fuel, Jim, because I didn't have it for a year. But uh, the back windows are like black very, very tinted. And the side, like passenger and driver's door windows are quite dark. And the windscreen has even got some tint on the top. Yeah, that's strange. What do you mean if you, it saved you fuel because you didn't have it for a year? Well, I paid for most of it. And because of, of COVID and production issues and chips. Oh, I see. <laughs> it took then, forever to get. Yeah, it was great on gas. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, um, what's the first one? And by the way, are these in or in any sort of order? Yeah, um, that tabulation of data from the twenty-year study, um, it, the one that came out the most, the highest incident of police officers filling out these reports at the scene, speed too fast on a city street. Yeah, they attributed that the motorcyclist speed was too fast. And that's what caused the issue. Okay, hang on, Clint. I got to stop you right there because there are going yeah. to be so many people listening to this saying, no way. Once again, you're you're trying to blame the rider. Why, why would speed too fast cause an accident for someone? Like, I know that's sort of an obvious question. Maybe I should rephrase yes. that slightly. But but why would, why would speeding too fast be such a factor? Mostly because intersections. So our adventure riding life doesn't have a lot of intersections when we're out in the country because that's where most of us want to go. But you get in a city, intersections of traffic going many different points on the compass, and some of them are taking the right of way when it isn't theirs. That's an the highest danger point for a motorcyclist. So if the posted speed limit is 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour. If you're traveling even 10 miles an hour faster, 16 kilometers an hour faster, it takes you further distance to stop. You have less reaction time to react when you are cut off or someone pulls in front of you. So that's why the police officers wrote down speed too fast. Mm. Judging by skid marks, forensically, they could tell a lot about speed. If your skid mark is 300 meters long, you weren't doing 50 kilometers an hour. <laughs> and, and actually, there's science behind all of this. There's, there's all kinds of testing and everything. I mean, we, we've had a guy on who's a tire expert who goes to court and, and testifies for this sort of thing. They know this down to a T. Absolutely. And so... The officer putting down speed too fast, they're not picking on motorcyclists. They're just relating the facts of the scene. 
that it could have been the car driver saw the approaching rider, but misjudged their approach speed. And if you think of it, the way the human eye and the brain works, if someone shoots an arrow at you or throws a desk at you, if the desk and the arrow are traveling at the same speed, you could dodge the desk way easier than the arrow. And that kind of relates to the car and the bike. And it may even appear that the desk is coming to you much faster. And, and that's what it is, isn't it? Because when you're talking about it, it, this has to do with conspicuity as well. Yes. So when, when we spot a motorcycle in the distance and it looks very small, it seems like it's very far away. It may not even be seen for that matter. So they may miss us as we're far away. But because we're traveling so fast from what you're saying is the next time they notice you, you're right there. And so they're possibly yes. pulling out in front of you. Yeah. And that's a direct correlation of the speed we were traveling. And that's why you're saying that. Yes. And it's very common. Um, one of the kind of sad things I do is I was asked by a lawyer in the sense of that I'm a safety expert to review a case where the motorcyclist, they proved by surveillance cameras of a restaurant that he passed by that he was doing 127 kilometers an hour in a posted 50 kilometer an hour zone. So when you watch these surveillance tapes, um, you see cars going by and then you see this little zip and you think, what was that? It wasn't even discernible as a bike. It went by these cameras so quickly. And a matter of yards past this surveillance camera, uh, a van pulled out of a side street and the driver of the van swore that they turned left and looked and the way was clear. And then the motorcyclist hit her uh, broadside and sadly didn't survive that accident. And vision experts said that this occupant of the van had looked and did not see that motorcyclist but they were traveling so quickly, they came into her field of vision while she'd already turned back towards moving off. Mm. So if you remember years ago, there were stickers that say, look twice, save a life. And that's um, referring to, you know, an approaching motorcyclist can hide behind a telephone pole in the perspective of vision. They also may be going a lot faster than you perceive. So look twice. Don't just pull out. Mm, that's a really good point. But but what you're saying there about the speed and, and the and the fact that this woman pulls out in front, really she's not pulling out in front of a, of a rider. And if you think about that in particular in a city because the intersections are so close and there might be turns and there might be hills, you can be just out of vision because you're traveling so fast. So yeah, I I totally get what you're saying about the speed. So that's an easy one to correct. How do we correct that, Clinton? Well, on intersections approach, what David Huff alluded to, and I've adapted to my own riding style, and I don't remember the exact wording that Mr. Huff had, but what I, I give him credit for my personal philosophy. So when I'm, there's a main street in my town that's four lanes, two going north, two south. And you could get any kind of fast food on the planet, on the street. So it's incredibly busy 
with intersections and driveways leading to restaurants, banks, shopping plazas. It's one dangerous road, in my opinion. So what I'm doing is, I'm not going to lie, I'm probably 10 kilometers per hour over the speed limit on my bike. But when I see an intersection looming ahead of me, it's almost instinctive now. I do it without really thinking of it, but I put my two fingers closest to my thumb on my right hand. I put on my front brake and I breathe on them a little. And I've what happens is my brake light comes on. So I'm telling following traffic, hey, I might have to do something up here. And often that will cause them to take the foot out of their gas pedal or sometimes even change lanes if they're impatient. That, that's an interesting thing that you're saying right there, because in particularly with cars, you would be taught that you cover the brake, but you don't actually apply the brake. But there's a reason, there's a, there's a distinct reason that you're doing that. And that is to alert the people, wake those people up behind you. And that's important for something that we're going to talk about later. So I just wanted to make yeah. that point here now. Yeah. The other thing that I achieve by putting the front brake on a little bit is I'm warming the rotor up. My suspension is loaded a little bit. The reason front brakes on every road vehicle work better than rear brakes is if you're holding a coffee and you decelerate by a lack of throttle or putting a brake on, your coffee spills forward, doesn't it? Yeah, I hate it when that happens on the bike. <laughs> so the idea is there's a weight transfer forward whenever we slow down that squashes our front suspension down and puts more weight on top of the contact patch of the front tire, subsequently giving us fantastic traction and braking ability out of the front wheels. So most cars have bigger discs on the front than they do the back. And most motorcycles have huge discs on the front, very small on the back, because the back brake, it's stabilizing. It gives you a little deceleration ability, but nothing compared to the front. People say 70-30, but in hard braking, it's like 90-10. Well, well, it varies the whole time, doesn't it? Depending yes. on how much braking you're doing. So the, the yeah. quicker the slowdown, the more weight transfer there is to the front tire until the point where the rear wheel actually comes off the ground and there's zero connection. Yeah. The other thing that I've achieved is I just turned 63. Oh, and I happy birthday. Uh, oh, thank you. I forgot about that because I was in the Yukon, right? Yeah, yeah right. it was hilarious. They uh, bought me a cake in Alaska and that was hilarious because it was, they didn't choose it. They phoned ahead and said, listen, we're coming for dinner at the restaurant that we usually go to called Fast Eddie's in Tuck, Alaska. It's fantastic. And... Uh, they brought out this great big slab cake because there's, you know, 20 of us. And the whole top of the cake was fantastic in the beautiful pride colors. Mm. So people were saying, oh, it's Clinton's coming out cake. So <laughs> oh, I was, see. it's I see the favorite it cake I've ever had. So that picture is going to circulate. I'm sorry, we, we, I've hijacked the conversation here, but but that picture is going to circulate um, with, with all kinds of uh, different... I'll send you that picture. <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Go back but to anyway, what you were saying. <laughs> getting back to the break. So the reflexes aren't as good as they used to be. But 
my two fingers are already on my brake on the approach. I've scrubbed off speed from 60 down to 50. So it would be like an American doing 40 miles an hour, but the speed limit is 30. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm an advocate of put a little front brake on. It's loading the front end, scrubs off speed, the brake light comes on. But one of the most important aspects is if a car turns left in front of me or a truck pulls out from a side street going the same direction as I am, not only is my speed already lower, my brain is already in braking mode. My fingers are already on the front brake. A bit of my coffee has already spilled. <laughs> so I can get on the brakes really hard faster than you can if you're going through the intersection with your right hand encapsulated around the throttle. Right. And every fraction of a second is feet that you're moving, depending on your speed. And so that the time it takes you to, to reach the brake lever, the time it takes you to apply the brakes, time it takes there for the suspension to compress, all that stuff you've already done, that's feet that you're going along further if you hadn't done that already. Absolutely. And it's proven just 10 kilometers an hour difference could mean the difference in stopping distance that will see you having uh, sandwiches at the hospital or maybe little sandwiches at your memorial service. Mm. So I can't emphasize enough, do not speed on city streets, slow down to at least the posted speed limit and then scan left and right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. As you're coming up to that intersection, what are you watching for? Left and right. I've had a quick look in my mirror to make sure if I have to hammer the brakes on, am I going to be an emblem on the front hood of a truck? Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh man, I avoided car that turned left in front of me, but I got run over by a bus. Right. So it's, it's really important to have a quick look the safety nuts say you should look in your mirror once every 10 seconds, whatever, but definitely approaching an intersection, have a quick glance. Yeah, I've, I've, I've carried that over from driving cars and, and trucks that anytime I touch that brake, I, I, I already know what's in my rear mirror, but, but it's a habit yes. that I look in the rear view the moment I touch the brake because I need to know what's behind me. I already know what's in front of me. Yeah, fantastic idea. So then I'm eyes are up and I'm scanning as far down the road as possible. The car's in front of me to see if there's likely to be an abrupt lane change. Some people put their left turn signal on at the very last second and a following car who's peeved off that they're gonna be home eight seconds later will dart around them changing lanes abruptly. So I'm always watching for what some people might do and then approaching traffic is, excuse me, Jim, approaching traffic, it's even more relevant that you scan and watch them. So what I'm worried about is the car that's coming towards the same intersection from the opposite direction, are they going to turn left in front of me? Because we've already discussed, I don't think you should trust a turn signal. Sometimes people don't use them. Sometimes it's been on since they bought the car. 
And uh, that's really dangerous just to rely on turn signals. So what, what this brings us to, this, this brings us to your second topic. Yes. Which is what? Um, the vehicle that turns left across the path of the approaching motorcycle. So again, we're at an intersection. Intersections yeah. are extremely dangerous. So we're at an intersection and we're, we're having to deal with this vehicle crossing in front of us. Now, this also was in the Hurt Report, wasn't it? Huge. It was number one in the Hurt Report. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just been replaced by speed too fast because it was harder in the old days to judge forensically speed when there wasn't witnesses to say, you know what, that bike passed me. I thought I was stopped. He was going so fast. Yeah. Then there's a correlation to speed. But, you know, the officer shows up, the bike's in the ditch, the person's gone to the hospital. There's a big dent in the fender of the car. And it's on the side of the car that illustrates they turned left. That was an easy one. But um, now there's more sophisticated forensics with tire treads, as you're talking about measurements. Every forensic team has a drone camera they send up now to get overall still shots and video of the scene. There's a lot more involved. So they've added speed too fast. But the vehicle approaching us, both of you have green, but they turn left across your path. Uh, The most common thing that they say is either I didn't see the rider or you know, I saw that bike. I, I think they must have speeded up. So they've misjudged our approach speed, which we talked about earlier. Right. So, so again, it's, it's that speed and conspicuity. Yes. So that's um, what we, we talk about it. I did this presentation at motorcycle shows where I would ride a street bike in a, indoors at the show And I would wear a microphone and kind of narrate the top three issues that a street rider may have in the city, talk about them, and then illustrate things that you could do as a rider to practice in parking lots or what you could do mentally to prepare yourself to avoid those issues. Mm -hmm. So the car that turns left, no vehicle goes perfectly straight down their lane, and then does an exact 90-degree turn. So, so what you're talking about here is signs. So, so as we're approaching, yes. you're giving us things to watch for so that we can exactly. understand what's happening. Right. So that approaching vehicle will deviate from straight. Something changes. The hood drops. You see the headlights go down. Why are they decelerating? They're braking. Yeah, alarm bells should go off in your helmet for sure. They deviate. Some people will go out of a sorry, straight... Clint, to, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but the reason you're, you're talking about the front dipping is because you're thinking of a vehicle coming in the opposite direction that has the potential to turn left but doesn't have their signal on, yet you see exactly. the front end dip, and that's your indicator right there that this person's st- uh, slowing down quickly for a reason. They're likely about to dart in front of my motorcycle. Yeah. Exactly. Even if they don't, my fingers are on the brake just in case they do. Right. But you should be aware the more aware you are of the potential left turner, the more time you have to prepare. It's not as much as a shock. Right. 
Now, one of the other indicators would, would be the direction of the tires. If you see a yes. vehicle sitting there and you don't know that they're about to go, it's also the opposite of what you, you were saying is you could look at the direction of the tires and the hood may raise slightly as they start to accelerate. Yeah. Exactly. It's coming up on the suspension under the gas pedal. But on the approach before they even slow down, because some of them don't even stop or slow down. Right. They just cut you off. But they'll set up for their left turn by either going wider in their lane, which allows them to keep their speed up, or they'll kind of gravitate towards the center of the two lanes, moving towards you to set up for their turn. But either way, hood drop, hood raise, or deviation, they're setting up for a turn. And that's what we have to scan and be aware of. And you probably expect them to make a turn. Like, well, like when I enter an intersection like that or come up to the intersection, I expect something to happen. I'm sure that's what you're doing as well. It is. I think some people might think we're paranoid. You know, I didn't get into this sport to drive around town thinking cars are going to kill me. But I think you should ride as if you're invisible, that don't expect to be seen just because you're on a great big bike. Adventure bikes are usually a little bigger mm-hmm. than um, street bikes without top case, side case, windshields. But it doesn't mean you're going to be seen. I have a buddy who rides a police bike. He's a road racer and also a traffic cop. And in Metro Toronto, the Harley Davidsons are white. They have great big windshields, crash guards, saddlebags, top case siren and flashing light he still has people turn left in front of him Mm. and at at first he was shocked like how could you not see that bike i'm sorry officer i didn't see you so if if this guy can't be seen what are we gonna do and that goes back to what you were saying about the psychologist saying that they're looking for cars they're looking for a whole car, like it or not, even though they know motorcycles and people are, are on the road and things like that, they're really focusing for cars because that's their biggest concern. And that's what you see the most of. Yeah. A good way to describe that is if you bought a red Honda Civic, Oh yeah. you know, 15 years ago, all of a sudden there's hundreds of them. Yeah. You see 10 of them a day, they're everywhere, but your brain did not, decipher that they were there. There's no more Honda Civics just because you bought one, <laughs> but your your brain sees them. It's important to you. I call that the, the Volkswagen effect for the exact same reason. I've said that for years, but the other one is that was pointed out to me was the pregnant woman effect. When, when you're pregnant, all of a sudden you see all these other pregnant women. So yes. I mean, that one throws you off. But, but one thing I was going to say there, because you were talking about the, the, some people don't even slow down when they're going to cut in front of you. You may have ridden for 50 years at this point in your life and think, well, you know, I haven't had a problem like this. You know, 50 years have gone by and, and, and I'm fine and I'm just going to keep going along the way I'm going. But the, here's what's happened in that 50 years or over that 50 years in 20 years, whatever the case is, things have changed. Vehicles have gotten better and better for control, for braking, for steering. Back in the 60s, if you'd done a, a, a turn like that, cut across an intersection, you're likely going to squeal your tires because they were <laughs> bias ply tires that, you know, and the vehicle would roll up as it, as it starts yeah. to heave over to one side, like you were saying about your coffee cup. But nowadays, even the lowest priced cars, they, they handle like a, like a sports car, almost like a race car. So people are able to do high speed maneuvers much 
more than what they were in the past. So the fact of the matter is the streets are getting faster and faster. And although cars are being built with airbags and things like that for a motorcyclist, I think it's becoming more dangerous. And that's just my opinion, but but I think it becomes more dangerous as we get more vehicles driving faster, doing faster high-speed maneuvers. I agree. Uh, Congestion has certainly gone up in many cities from when I first started riding. That was an argument in our house, I guess, 16 years, 15 years ago. My eldest son is saying, you know, I'm 16. I'm going to take the two-day course you teach, Dad. Uh, What street bike am I going to get to ride? And my wife and I had already discussed it and said, you know what? We think you should drive the truck. I had an 89 Chev with a personality, but I just bought a new truck. So he sure wasn't getting the new truck. But we think you should drive four wheels for a couple of years and learn that people, after they get their license, don't necessarily drive the way they did the day they got their license. So you learn traffic sensibilities. It's not how good a rider you will be, but it's how bad a driver they are. Mm -hmm. How long did he have to wait for his motorcycle license? Well, he got it the you know, the weekend he was 16, but we wouldn't let him ride on the street until he was 18. Oh, oh you wow. kept him off for two years? Wow, good yeah, for you. You should have heard the arguments. I, I think he should have been a lawyer. <laughs> um, what about the stories, Dad? You got your license the day you were 16. I said, yeah. In Barrie, a lot of moms were working in the home. They didn't have second cars. There was 25,000 people in my city. Now there's 155,000 and most driveways have two cars. And it hasn't gotten any bigger. No. The area hasn't expanded with these people. I think the final argument was I turned into my father because he kept coming back. Well, how come Emily has, we had a 16 year old young lady who's like a niece, but she just works with us. I said, she's not my daughter. I can't tell her. But finally I said, look up. And he goes, what? I said, look up. What do you see? He goes, the kitchen ceiling. I said, yeah, when that's yours, you can do what you want. (laughs) (laughs) But he did thank us. He came home in the truck when he was 17. He said, dad, I just got cut off on Bayfield Street, this major street. I stood on the brakes so hard. All his soccer gear in the back seat ended up in the front seat. And he goes, now I get what you mean. Mm, Yeah. But a point, another point I'd like to make to listeners is it's one thing to ride for a great length of time, but we can get a little relaxed about our riding skills. And one of the things that the police that I've, a lot of them bring their kids dirt riding and I get to talk to them a lot. And one of them recently asked me a question. He goes, Clinton, a lot of street bikes don't have ABS still in Canada. In Europe, you can't sell a motorcycle for the street unless it's ABS. Mm. So that's coming to North America, but we're not there yet. So he said what he doesn't understand at motorcycle incidents where a car is turned left or something's happened, sometimes there's no skid marks, but the motorcyclist has hit the car. Absolutely zero skid marks where they should have seen the car way back, hammered on the brakes and left some rubber on the ground. 
and I'm no expert, but I attribute that to the motorcyclist. Maybe they've ridden for years. They were just minding their own business. And when the car cut them off, I believe the brain resorts to what is habitual. So if you don't have good practice, fresh emergency braking or swerving skills, when the car cuts you off, you might just freeze because you don't have habits to fall back on. You're almost afraid to hit the brakes because you don't want to upset yourself. You don't even think of it oh. because you're just in shock and you don't put your brakes on and you don't leave a skid mark. You just go, ah, and hit the car. That's what I attribute that to. So I think every single spring, like the police that I know, we should all go out into a parking lot. If you don't have a rider training school close by that you could do some advanced training or refresher street training, I think you should go out with a friend in a parking lot, maybe a, a factory that's for lease and you're allowed to be there, not in a shopping mall or something, and do some progressively harder stops. Just 20 miles an hour, 30 kilometers an hour, get on the brakes harder and harder. Yes, you're going to chew up a little of your brakes in the rubber, but it's incredibly important to be able to quickly react and know if you've got the time and space to stop. That has to be an almost instantaneous decision based on your experience performing emergency maneuvers. Mm -hmm. If you get cut off and braking isn't appropriate, maybe swerving is. But you can't change your mind halfway through. Oh, I got both wheels locked up, but it looks like I'm still going to hit the van. Okay, I'm going to switch to swerving. That doesn't work. Right. You just high side the bike. You are a, obviously a professional rider. You do it for a living all through the summer. You're teaching people. You're thinking about it. You're keeping your skills up. Yet every spring, that's what you do, isn't it? Absolutely. Go out and I have uh, an FZ09 or FZ09 in the States. So it's got pure street bike tires on it. It hasn't been customized or anything, but I do ride it quite a bit in the street and my sons use it as well. So I'll, I'll practice on that because it has an incredibly short wheelbase, but very powerful brakes. So if I get on the front brakes on that bike as hard as I do uh, the 1250 GS, which is longer and heavier, I'll stand that FZ right up on its nose. So I have to take a little millisecond longer. It's called progressive braking. If you have cat-like reflexes and just snake bite like your hand comes out in a flash of an instant and grabs the front brake hard, without ABS, you could skid that front wheel because you locked it up before the coffee spilled. There has to be the weight transfer forward. So a really expert rider gets on the front brake calmly, waits until the suspension compresses a little bit. Now they can haul in on that front brake. Mm -hmm. But unless you've practiced that skill on the bike that you're riding, how safe of a rider are you in the event of an oncoming collision? 
So I insist that my staff do it the same as the police. We all have what's called recertification where they have to practice the talking portion of their lessons. But every single one of them has to throw a leg on a bike and we do hard braking in the gravel, front brake only, downhills, logs. It's a fun day, but it's they haven't ridden in six months. How rusty are their skill sets? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're talking about that because we, because we get snow here. You, where yes. you and I are in the same area, we get snow, so we're unable to ride in the wintertime. But, but even if you ride year-round, certainly checking those, because what I was going to say is if you're not used to doing a procedure being that heavy braking, how will you do it when it comes time for an emergency? It'll be like what you said, where, where you panic. And you don't do anything. So, so doing that as you're as you're explaining, I, I totally see the value in that because you can practice to the point where it becomes part of your habits. You're already comfortable doing that. So when the emergency happens, you have those skills to deal with that emergency, not just I know what I'm supposed to do. Exactly. And a heavily laden adventure bike when you're off touring and you're coming into a city for fuel and food, maybe accommodation. That bike handles a lot differently than it does when you're commuting to work on it. Because now you've got it fully laden, maybe three bags and a tank bag. Uh, Riding with a passenger changes the way that motorcycle handles dramatically. So um, a lot of people say when they unload their bike from the truck up in the Yukon, oh my God, this thing is so heavy riding slowly because they really haven't taken it out on kind of a a breakdown run to check it out mm. before they just jump on it. A shakedown run, yeah. Shakedown, yes. Yeah, yeah. Not a, not a breakdown. You wanted a breakdown. We don't run. want a breakdown one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew what you meant. But okay, yeah. so so that brings us to to your third one, which is what? It shocked me when I tabulated it, but around the world in many many countries, the third main reason of having a problem in traffic is being hit from behind by a larger vehicle when we stop on our motorcycle. That, and it's horrifying to think of that because now all of a sudden, what, I have to worry about what's in front and I have to worry about what's behind me? Yeah. So at most basic curriculum to get your license around the world, it's often a two-day course in the summer taught at a collegiate or some or a school where They have big parking lots, but they're not used in the summer because kids are off. So a lot of rider training schools, their instructors will ask you, as soon as you come to a stop with your left foot down and your right foot up, do a shoulder check. And a lot of street riders that I coach will say, well, I don't have to shoulder check. I got mirrors on my bike. There's a couple of problems with mirrors. One They have a blind spot. There's diagonally behind you, another motorcyclist or a small car could not be seen in your mirror, but it's still approaching you quite quickly. The other issues with mirrors, and I'm not cutting up particular brands of bikes. I got chewed out by a very big guy with tattoos at a bike show because I made this little joke that you know, some of our bikes at idle, the mirror and the bars are shaking. So you could imagine what bike I'm talking about. Perhaps no, no, a, I, I don't know, Clinton. Maybe you could tell me what, which bike is a, that. Perhaps a big V-twin of some kind. So as soon as that big flywheel gets RPM, the engine is revs come up, 
the mirrors are crystal clean. Um, I've taught a lot on racetracks for cruiser riders. There was a curriculum in Ontario where I, I helped develop it. and We taught it for years. So I rode every kind of Harley Davidson and Beale that was made at that time, like 15 years ago. I loved the Road King because you could almost steer it with your knees. It was so smooth at highway speeds. But at an idle at a stoplight, it's shaking the big V-twin. And I couldn't discern a clear image in the mirror. So I always shoulder checked. But I told this, and it's just a joke. I don't believe it's true. But what I said to people is you don't have to shoulder check. You could still use your mirrors at a stop sign with those bikes. You just have to get your head vibrating at the same frequency of the mirror. And I almost got beaten up for that. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when we're talking about getting hit from behind, the, the concern is, so what do we do with this? What sort of information do we gather? And then how do we use it? First of all, I think you and I have talked about it before. I'm sure I heard the wisdom from you, Jim, that on the approach to deceleration, I'm, I'm heading up to a stop sign, red light, whatever. If I go near a brake with my hand or foot, I'm, I've already looked in my mirror. Why would you put the brake on if there's a great big van or truck right behind you? It's insane. Mm -hmm. So I always have a quick look in my mirror. Then when I come to a stop and that your stopping position has some relevancy here, we recommend you stop at least a car length or a bike and a half length behind the car in front of you. If you stop four car lengths behind, you might think that's extra safe, but two or three vehicles are going to jump into that open space you've left because we're in such a hurry now in the city. So the idea is you've left yourself an out in front of you. If you stop and you do an immediate shoulder check, and you see a taxi cab coming at you sideways. It was raining on King Street in Toronto, and I used to deliver my film to a photography lab. So you could tell this was a while ago. It was pre-digital. And surface street, 50 kilometers an hour. I slow down. I look in my mirror. I see a, a taxi cab because they're bright yellow in Toronto, like New York. And... When I stopped, I shoulder checked. He was inattentive. I don't know what he was looking at, but it wasn't at me. So when he finally saw me, he hammered on the brakes and swerved. And the car was approaching me sideways. Now I'd left more than a bike length between my front tire and the car in front of me. So I, and I always leave it in first gear if I'm in traffic. I launched... And I moved my bike between the two rows of cars that were stopped for the red light. The taxi cab smashed into the car that I passed. So I would have had a lot shorter motorcycle and maybe little sandwiches at my memorial service. Mm -hmm. And, and so still, shoulder. instead, rather, you've got a story and, and you had an experience. That was it. Yeah. Now, even in the parts of North America where you're not allowed to share the lanes or lane split, no policeman in the world's going to give you a ticket for avoiding being hit. 
if you run up the white line between lanes of traffic. Yeah. It's survival. But had I not shoulder checked, you know, you just stop, you relax, you're looking around, but not behind you. That's very, very dangerous. Statistically, it's number three. And as you're riding along, you already know what's behind you anyway. Yeah, I have a good, you know, I do check my mirrors as often as I can. Mm -hmm. But I'm also in the left tire track in the slow lane or the rightmost lane. If you're in the right tire track of the right lane, i.e. you're close to the curb or sidewalk, it's an invitation to following traffic to share your lane, mm-hmm. especially if that driver is European or perhaps from South Africa. When I've driven in other countries that are perhaps less lane defensive or obsessive, lane splitting is going to be a hard pill for Toronto drivers to swallow compared to California because they don't like sharing the lane. They don't like letting people in because they're in such a hurry. Traffic's congested. But um, I think there'll be people would open their doors to block a motorcyclist coming up between traffic. But when I rode in South Africa, if people looked in their mirror and saw a few motorcycles behind them, they would pull over towards the edge of the road and allow the motorcyclist to pass by their left side of their car. Well, it was actually the right side because it's the other side of the road there. Mm. But my point being is coming to Canada or the U.S., many drivers from other countries will pass a motorcyclist in their lane if the motorcyclist is riding close to the ditch or, or sidewalk. You've got to be prepared for that. So the left tire track is a better blocking position. And it also affords the rider a better view of what's happening in front of them. As long as you've stayed back far enough behind the traffic that's in front of you that you can see over it. So I don't follow big vans or trucks. I'll pull over if I have to or pass them if it's safe because I want to see what's happening way down the road. I don't want to see the back of a transport truck. Now, everything you've talked about here today is at intersections. We, we, this is a dangerous, dangerous spot, obviously, at the intersection. And when you were talking about making the left-hand turn and the, the vehicle in front of you making the, or sorry, even going straight and the vehicle in front of you turning left, if you're sitting there making a left-hand turn, there's the other um, problem that you can run into. You know, if two vehicles are facing each other, you're both making a left-hand turn, the vehicles coming against you, so in other words, behind that vehicle, will often swerve around to go around if they don't think there's anything making a left-hand in front of them. That's another spot. So it's that whole awareness thing you're talking about where, where you're watching everything that's going on, anticipating. And you use that yes. word, you said anticipating stuff. And I think you have to anticipate if you're in the blind spot of a vehicle, other traffic cannot see you and will proceed forward, not thinking when the lane clears. Uh, a good example is a gentleman from Yamaha that was their mechanic. Fantastic guy. He was a scooter freak. He would hop up scooters. And whenever I visited Yamaha, I'd go have a coffee with him because he was really a great guy. 
Well, you could take home motorcycles from work. So he'd never been on an R1, which is a pretty fast bike, super brakes, super suspension. But it wasn't a scooter that he was used to commuting to work in. So as he was following a school bus, the school bus stopped waiting for traffic to clear so it could turn left. He's directly behind the school bus. When the school bus turned left and was out of the intersection, he proceeded but was hit by a van that couldn't see him when he was behind the bus. And they just assumed, well, the bus has moved. I can turn left now. So a van coming towards him actually killed this guy because they didn't see him behind the bus. They were clearly at fault. They did not yield the right of way to him. But it's just so sad. And that I think of Alex when I'm in a blind spot. So if you, a blind spot is... You're beside a transport truck. They can't see you in their mirror. You're in their blind spot. They could change lanes and not be able to see you in their door mirrors. Mm -hmm. So stay away from trucks. They're some of the most experienced drivers on the road, but they're inherently dangerous to motorcycles for possibly stuff that comes off their wheels, kicks up, and they're just so big we could be just in front of the tractor or beside it on the trailer and they can't see us. Yeah. And of course, if you're that close, like you said, you, you can't see anything either. So you can't anticipate anything, you know, and I'm sure you've seen it before where, like you said, a truck goes over something or a tire blows apart. And if you're yeah. right there, you have no time to react. You know, one other thing that I wanted to mention to you as well is a, a, a dangerous situation because it's something that I deal with now where we are. There's a, a two lane highway that's pretty well traveled. It's called number seven highway. And um, there's a lot of traffic there. And so I have to make a left off this highway onto my road. There's no lights at the intersection. Now on the right, there's a, a right-hand turn lane just on the right-hand side to make, if you're turning right on this road. And it's, a, it's like I say, there's no lights here. It's not a very clearly marked intersection. So what'll happen is invariably, if you sit to make a left and traffic is coming towards you, the vehicles behind you, instead of waiting as they're supposed to, they will go to that right-hand turn lane. They will use it as a bypass lane, which is illegal, but they'll do it anyway. And my fear of this always when I'm sitting, when I have to go up there and I'm, and I'm stuck waiting is that the person that's right behind me will not let off the gas, not touch the brakes as, I, as I'm slowing down. They will go into that lane to whip around and the one behind them won't have a clue what's going on or that I'm even there. And that's when I'm going to get hit. So I, I have to be super aware of what's going on. And I'm paying attention to this entire intersection and the line of traffic behind me. What I'll often do is give myself a little more space than, uh, than I've got because you know how people tend to tailgate. I will speed yes. up knowing the intersection's coming up and then start putting my brakes on. I'll, I'll touch my brakes and I'll touch them again to give them the visual cues I'm slowing down. And because I have that distance between me and the car that was, was right behind me, the cars behind them have the opportunities to see my lights. And it's just like what you were talking about when you're behind the truck and you can't see and no one can see you, it's the same thing behind. If someone is right behind you, the vehicle behind them is unlikely to know you're there. And that's the opportunity. That's one of those spots where a, a, a bright helmet might come in. Absolutely. And I agree that, and it's a decision that we as riders in your situation have to make. When we stop 
in traffic, and you're talking about an 80 kilometer an hour zone probably, is yeah, it Highway 7? Right. Yep. They're flying and you're doing zero. That is extremely dangerous scenario because they don't see us. Mm -hmm. So conspicuity, wearing bright colors, is part of the equation or the answer to reducing our risk in city traffic or highway traffic. But we also have to decide if you were to hug the center line when you're stopped waiting to turn left, that opens up more of the lane to your right, which will allow traffic to pass. But it's scary if traffic are passing you in your own lane and they're doing highway speeds. Yeah. And then you also become, you blend, you don't stand yes. out the same either, you know, and, yeah. and what I have done before when the traffic's been really bad there is I've turned right and then waited yeah. to make a, a right angle to like, or a straight cross across the highway. So I'll turn right, turn around when, when I have a spot there and then go back to the intersection. I know that sounds ridiculous, but to me, I'd rather spend a few extra minutes and arrive alive sort of thing. Or you can think about it when you're in hospital and say, you know what, if I just taken a minute longer exactly. and passed my street until I could turn somewhere else with lights Yeah, and it was safer. Yeah. Um, all of us, even riders, we're in too much of a rush sometimes to make the prudent decision. We make a quick decision and that could hurt us. So um, with our, our rider skills, we always leave the rider skill episode with some sort of training you can do at home for this sort of thing. What would you recommend? Uh, by David Huff's books. But, you know, in the winter, I read a lot and watch a lot of stuff to get ideas from other instructors around the world. I think it really helps develop more mental skills for riding. You know, we we talk a lot about how do you ride ruts? How do you go up a hill? But I also think we've really got to develop our mental street riding skill sets, anticipation, and thinking about what could happen, what can I do, where can I go, play that game of chess on your bike, think a couple moves ahead, and experience really helps, but thinking about it and reading about it will help a brand new rider as well. Well, Clinton, that was great, fascinating stuff there to, to learn today. And, and it's really interesting how we went through there and you realize that speeding too fast in the city, which you could have easily just said, I, I thought it was the first thing you're going to say is, well, I'll just slow down. But um, that's not what it is, you know. So speeding too fast, the conspicuity of your motorcycle, in particular because you're going too fast, your braking distance. And then if the vehicle turns in front of the rider, again, your speed will play into that as well. Your conspicuity will again play into that because because the faster you're going, the less time they get to see you, the less time they, they see you as large. And then being hit while being stopped, again, if you're going too fast and you stop fast, things happen much quicker, right? So, I mean, it's it all connects together so well. It really does. And, it, you know, dressing in bright orange helmets like I have or a yellow vest is not the complete answer, but it's a little part of my armor, then some experience, you know, silly things, even as far as having good tire tread and good brake pads, but it's the skills to put them on. And if you're having to do emergency brakes and swerves every day you ride to work, uh, the other traffic is not the problem. You've got some issues. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. 
it shouldn't happen. You're riding too fast. You're too aggressive changing lanes. Uh, I have a buddy who was a pro road racer and he pretty well rides on the street with the same attitudes. He doesn't use hand signals or turn signals. He zips in and out of traffic. I just can't ride with him anymore on the street because it's just too risky mm-hmm. for me. And I just know I'm going to get a phone call someday because he's an incredibly adept skills rider, like phenomenal. I would trust, I could ride on the back of him on a racetrack. I have done when I was a still photographer. And he's incredibly skilled, but it's the other people on the road who don't see us or perhaps aren't quite as skilled that are going to be his problem one day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Clinton, that was great. Thank you very much again for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Jim. Take care. That was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. The website is smartadventures.ca. They operate out of the Horseshoe Resort. So if you're if you're coming from out of town, they've got full facilities there to stay at. Um, and they've got a great setup for riding. Smartadventures.ca. Now we've got some photos of Clinton doing various things, including the cake that he's mentioned, him getting the cake. You've got to see that. The other thing is him making a, a corner with a Yamaha Viking um, in the show notes for this episode. Now, if you haven't seen the Viking, it has two front wheels. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I look at it, it reminds me of one of those freak show things you would have saw at a carnival back in the day. All that is in the show notes for this Rider Skills episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and to you thank you very much for listening. Hey, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support and if you enjoy what you're listening to, if you're getting something out of the shows just consider supporting the show because we need your support we need you to step up to sit back and wait for everyone else to do it um, it just doesn't happen because honestly there are so many people listening to this show every single day every week every month all throughout the year and only a very very small percentage actually support the show so do us a favor please drop by adventureriderradio.com click on support have a look you could become a patron supporter which means you just sign up for monthly things like buying a cup of coffee for us every month or you could send in a, a single donation anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on raw so check out what we've got there we, we'd really appreciate it if you would do that anyway time to get out there and ride your bike if you can I hope you can I hope you're able to jump on that bike and think about what you've heard today and, and apply that on the road my name is Jim Martin thank you very much for listening I'll talk to you next week
Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 